0: The podcast for women in film and television.
1: Welcome to the Whipped ATX podcast. I am Chantal James, and today we will be chatting with filmmaker Kat Candler. Kat is a writer, director, and producer of film and television. Her award-winning feature, Hellion, starring Aaron Paul and Juliette Lewis, played in competition at the Sundance Film Festival. Kat's work in television includes directing seven episodes of Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey's highly acclaimed Queen, Sugar, two episodes of 13 Reasons Why, and an episode of Sorry for Your Loss. This last year, she directed three episodes of the Apple Plus show, Home Before Dark, and an episode of Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, starring Amanda Peet and Christian Slater. She has worked in TV as a showrunner, producing director and consulting producer. Kat is currently writing and developing a TV series set in the oil refinery world of Southeast Texas, produced by Ava DuVernay. Hello, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. (laughs) Hi. You definitely have had a wonderful career so far. How did you get into filmmaking?
2: Oh, wow. It goes back a while ago. I was... In college, I wanted to pursue acting. I was a big theater kid in high school. And so I spent one semester at Emerson College as an acting major and realized very quickly that was not the path I was to be on and retreated and ended up at Florida State. and. I worked in a movie theater from age 15 all through college and then when I was at Florida State I kind of landed in the English department creative writing and really just loved developing my craft at storytelling whether it was short fiction or playwriting and so at that time I was also working at the movie theater where all of the film kids at Florida State worked at so I kind of got roped into working on their thesis films and my eyes were open to the process of what making a movie looked like. I thought, you know, at that time I had no idea. I just thought movies landed at a theater near me. Like I had no, no clue the the machinery behind it. So that, and then coupled with a one act play that I'd written, my playwriting teacher had said, I think you should turn this into a short film. And I had no, again, like I had no idea what that meant or how to, how to do that. And so Those two things that kind of landed at the same time really nudged me in the direction of learning more about film and figuring out, you know, everything from writing scripts to like actually turning a camera on and how to light. So after college, I ended up, I was like, I think I'm going to, you know, take a swing at this. And L.A. at that time, this was the late 90s, was terrifying And New York was too cold, and so (laughs) I'd heard heard that Austin was this sort of mecca of independent filmmaking. There was, you know, Rick Linklater and Robert Rodriguez, and Mike Judge was there at the time, I think. And I came out to Austin to visit a friend and sort of just figure out what that world and that scene looked like, and I just fell in love. I, I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the film community. And so in Austin, I started to take some workshops from a filmmaker, Steve Mims, who has taught off and on at UT, and just learned the mechanics of, you know, three-point lighting and working with a camera. And from there, that was just kind of a launching pad of just starting to make stuff. And that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 20 years is just making stuff and continuing to make stuff on different levels with different people with different budget sizes. So that's, yeah, a little bit of the inception of how I found myself to filmmaking.
1: Yeah, that's super cool. I love it. Like little pieces at a time and then kind of figuring it out from there. Um, I love that too. Like the smaller communities helping you to kind of build and grow and, and lift you up it's, it's
2: really cool. Yeah. It's a re- I mean, Austin is such a, such a special place to make films, which I think for all of us, even, te- I mean, Texas really, truly like is such a, has been such a great community and foundation for so many filmmakers. I mean, the list is like endless and so many filmmakers with very unique stories from one to the next. And at you know, at the heart of so much of the community is the Austin Film Society, which, you know, has brought people in congregation in front, you know, to watch movies, but then also to make movies. And they certainly have been a champion of mine from the very, you know, from the very first grant that I received in 1999 for $5,000 for post-production of a feature that we would made that summer to now where I get to be more of, you know, an instrument in other people's journeys and careers, but yeah, I mean, Austin, and again, Texas has just always been just truly the foundation of my journey and my story of filmmaking. And again, like the community there is so nurturing. So everybody just helps each other out. And that's just the way it was early on. Like you need some hands on set. Great. We'll be there. Or you need to borrow my apartment to shoot in. No problem. Yeah, that's just you know the community that I love and hold so dear.
1: Yeah, it definitely does feel like there is a community here that wants to like lift you up and keep moving, and also like just working on cool stories and 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 see what comes from that. The grant that you mentioned um, from AFS was that for Hellion?
2: No, this so I mean the the mystery is not the mystery, not so mystery is that I made two features before I made Hellion. I made. Okay a feature called Cicadas, which nobody has seen um, really. It played at Austin Film Festival and did some other festivals back in 2000. So the grant was for post-production for that film. And then I made another feature called Jumping Off Bridges, which played at South by Southwest. And then we did a whole self-distributed release of that film. So I think there's always the mystery that You know, filmmakers they land at Sundance with this film, and then it's like overnight success. And truly, there's been literally like years, if not like a decade or so, prior to those successes that you've been working towards. And you know, just your your hands in the dirt, like making as much as you can. And there were two features prior to Hellion. There were many short films prior to Hellion. There were feature scripts you know, day jobs, making no money, paycheck to paycheck. I really honestly didn't make money in film until about four years ago. And I've been doing this for 20 years.
1: Now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. That's right yeah. too. Cause you were teaching at UT for, for a long time.
2: Yeah. I mean, those were such happy times when I started teaching at UT in 2008, I believe. And, you know, I wasn't, I was an adjunct, so I wasn't making hardly any money, but there was such a joy in waking up and getting to hang out with these young filmmakers, these wide-eyed filmmakers who are discovering some of my favorite films for the first time. And, you know, you get to talk craft all day long. And then on top of that, I was making these scrappy indie films at the same time. And so I didn't really have health insurance or a, a savings account, but man, it was like, you wake up every day with such joy in your heart during those times.
1: It's so fun. And do you feel like your the peric- curriculum that you incorporated into your teaching, you've also incorporated into your career?
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, I think that my films and my storytelling grew exponentially when I started teaching because you know, to have some sort of intelligence about what you're speaking to in the classroom, you have to go back and become a student again. And that's certainly what I did was I just started studying again and watching old films. And as you craft, like you were saying, as you craft your curriculum, you're having to, again, speak intelligently to it. And I, yeah, I just became a student again. And I continue, there are times where I'll get stuck on something now, and I'll actually go back to my lessons and look like, okay, let me look at just screenwriting structure again Um,
1: the simplicity of yeah absolutely sometimes we we get so complicated with story and you have to go back and just go okay actually beginning middle end
2: yes like (laughs) how does my character grow what is their flaw like all of these things that um that yeah you're you're and, and that was a beautiful thing is that you were living it every day as a teacher so as you're like teaching it you're incorporating it into the scripts that you're writing at the time the cool thing about uh teaching has been now I go into meetings in LA and I see my students or I oh,
1: right. um, very cool.
2: Get to mentor some of my students through some of their projects now, or I partner on some stuff. You know, it's just it's cool to see these young filmmakers from 10, 12 years ago who are now executives at companies that I'm pitching
1: at. Yeah, and this is the community that you helped to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Not just Austin based, you know, it's Los Angeles. It's completely all over the country.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And that community continues to extend here. Like, you know, the people that I am in LA right now, I've been in LA for three or four years now, dying to get back to Texas. But the projects where I'm at in my career, I just, it's so hard what we do. I just want to continue that thread of community and working with people I love, working with my Texas roots, my Texas friends, my Texas community. And it just makes... The process of what we do you get to savor it a little bit more you know
1: yeah definitely um the so Helian mm-hmm. talk to me about where the idea for the story came from
2: yeah so hellion started as a short film it was 2011 i guess and i'd had a short script that i'd written i think it was called faker or something like that at the beginning and it was something i'd written like years prior to based off of a story my uncle would tell at Thanksgiving dinners and holiday gatherings and I was just dying to make something that summer I was really really I had the itch and you know it's again as a as a teacher you're seeing your students making stuff all the time like literally they are out there with their cameras every weekend just like playing and taking risks and like just making stuff and I was like I want to make something in the summer I reached out to my friend Kelly Williams who at the time was a programmer the film programmer at Austin Film Festival and I said hey I want to make this short this summer just scrappy we'll gather some friends let's go do this and he was all in but I did go back and I recrafted that short script. It was like 6 pages and I probably wrote like 10 drafts of that little short script going back to my lessons of like mm-hmm. coding, crafting. And we gathered some friends. I think we raised $5,000. You know, I had some free equipment from UT which was such a treat as a professor to be able to like, oh, I have all of these all of these resources. And with no expectations, I had no expectations for that short I just wanted to make something. And then to our surprise, it got into Sundance and it was literally like, you know, you fall to your knees and you start crying and, you're like, it's my, you know, it's my turn because after getting rejected year after year after year, I, you know, I've gotten rejected to Sundance so many times for films, for labs, you name it. So when we got into Sundance for the short film, I, I knew I wanted to, at that point, early on actually to turn it into a feature and I'd actually started going down to Southeast Texas to do research on the feature because I knew I wanted it to live in the the world the refinery world and Kelly grew up there and it was such an entrance into refinery culture in in Southeast Texas and by the time we got to Sundance for the short film in 2012 I had a first draft of the feature not a very good first draft (laughs) Right, <laughs> But I had something to talk about, which yeah. really kind of launched us. I Kelly, I think, went to a brunch for the Creative Producers Lab. He ended up getting into the Creative Producers Lab a year later. I had breakfast with a woman from the San Francisco Film Society. We ended up getting like a sixty dollars or $70,000 grant from them for Hallie and the Feature, like a year later, a year and a half year later. So it really was a launching point for us. And then I just spent the next year writing, rewriting, again, like 10, 13 drafts of that script. But in the meantime, I knew that it was going to take a beat for us to make the feature. So I ended up making another short that summer that then got into Sundance the next year. And we were just on a, you know, we were on a roll of like writing, developing, making shorts it just really kind of propelled us when we got into Sundance for the feature film
3: yeah
1: yeah that's so great and it is you just have to keep making stuff like you said rejection after rejection finally if you keep making stuff you do get through because you're only going to get better as, as a storyteller
2: Yeah. And I will say the rejection never ends. It never, I mean, you just develop a very, very thick skin to it and know that rejection comes from a place on the other side of the table of just differing opinions of what people are responding to at that time or what they personally like or personally don't like or there's so much to why people don't respond to something for whatever reason so I've gotten so used to it but again like even now I get rejected all the time for lots of things we all do regardless of, <laughs> regardless yeah yeah
1: well that's very reassuring I'm sure. Uh, I would say on paper, it seems like you've had the perfect career trajectory from making short films to indie features and stepping into network television. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with this and how you've been able to like hit each of these marks while keeping your authenticity as a storyteller?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Definitely perseverance, definitely with grit and definitely a little luck, but going from Sundance in 2014 with a feature film and even earlier on with the first feature you're like things are going to happen the doors are going to open and then they don't so you keep making stuff and then the second feature things are going to happen doors are going to open and then they don't so you keep making stuff so after the feature for Hellion and Sundance it was like things are going to happen doors are going to open and they opened a little bit the door got wedged a little you know a tiny bit wider I definitely had meetings and relationships were built but I knew at that time you know I worked day jobs and taught I worked at book people in Austin for five years I worked for an artificial intelligence software company in Austin for five years I taught I didn't have money like I didn't have a savings account I was paycheck to paycheck those of us going to Sundance could barely afford (laughs) you know the condos that are astronomically priced
1: oh Um, it's so ironic isn't it (laughs) Is.
2: And so at that point, I was like, I really have to figure out how to sustain myself. And of course, television is such a great platform to be able to hone your skills, to have bigger resources, to get in and out of jobs. And so I knew I really wanted to find an entry point into television. And so I took a lot of meetings with production companies, with you know studios, with networks, and no one would hire me, which was certainly, you know, the story from so many of us at that time and even still, but Noah, it was always when you have an episode that you've directed, then come back to us. Right. So I was, I just continued writing and I had met Ava in 2020 11 2012 when the hellion short was playing at sundance she had middle of nowhere that was playing there we had met randomly during ifp that september but then we reconnected at the orientation for the directors going into sundance of 2012 and then we just kept in touch through the festival circuit through like just indie film circles and so in 2015 she was speaking at south by and after her keynote, we went out and she was said, I have this TV show I'm making called Queen Sugar. Would you be interested? And it was an immediate, yes, you know. Yes. I mean, <laughs> first just knowing her work, knowing her sensibility, and then actually reading the book, which I totally like fell in love with that book. So she was my entry point into television as she was for now, what, 30 plus? female directors. But at that time, it was literally, she was reaching out to all of his ragtag indie friends to come and direct. And it was a unique entry point. It was definitely, as I learned later, a different experience from a normal television directing experience in that she really armored us with creative ownership over our episodes and giving us a lot more power than a normal TV director might get on an episode of TV, of television. And then after directing two episodes the first season, she said, hey, would you be interested in producing directing on the second season? And I said, I don't totally know what that means, but I will <laughs> figure it out and do my best. And I knew that those of us, you know, because... Queen Sugar was such a launching pad and such a a space for newbies to come in and learn the process of television. When I approached producing director and that position is essentially the person who helms all of the directors. You're going to direct a few episodes, but your job is to really gives support to the directors, but also consistency to the vision and the language of the show. So I created like a lookbook, like this is what our visual language is and would give that to every director. I created an orientation packet saying, this is what you can expect from... A tone meeting, this is what you can expect from a tech scout, because so many of us come from, you know, a 20 person crew with no money and like yeah. tech scout is like, well, we're gonna be over here, you know, so really, it, and I think because I have that teaching background, it enabled me to have the tools to be the educator on set as well. And then the third season, Ava said, hey, would you be interested in show running the third season? And I said, I've never been in a writer's room. I am a writer. I've been writing for many years, but I don't totally know what to do, but I'll figure it out. And so that was, you know, my next experience was helming a season of television and I think she definitely knew that I'm hyper-organized because that was reflected in our work relationship the prior two seasons which is everything in television because you're juggling multiple episodes and multiple phases of production and post and writing and all of that. So I stumbled my way through show running and in those three seasons of television, I learned, you know, I I feel like I got my undergrad, my grad, my master's, my PhD in television and learned a lot. I learned so much that then I could, as a creator, pursue my own television shows and then go back to films. So since then, I've been directing a lot of episodic consulting, producing, but mostly developing my own material and partnering with friends on material as well.
1: Yeah, it's so cool. What a gift and, and also demonstrates like how important fostering relationships are in the industry.
2: It's everything. It truly is everything. And that's, you know, even with Hellion, Jeff Nichols and Sarah Green were our executive producers on the feature and they really nurtured us, Kelly and myself, through the process. They helped us, you know, build connections through their own connections with Ava and Queen Sugar. I mean, kind of all of, so many of the the launching points in my career have not been through the industry. They've been through my friends and they've been through my peers. And that, I think, is one of the, you know, people get, people like, I have to get an agent. I have to get representation. No, like you, if you are really propelling your career, if you are really like, just like, you know, the cliche of the train is moving and, you know, whether you want to hop on or off, it's a attra- that's attractive. Like, and, and as we all grow in this industry, like I'm helping out people behind me. I'm being helped by people above me. It's so much of reaching out in every direction to lift the people that you love, lift the deserving people who've been working their butts off and, and lifting people that you're just a fan of. You know, I got to hire two of my friends on the season three of Queen Sugar. I was just like a massive fan of their work. Yeah, that's everything, you know, when you get to be in a place of hiring and getting to really provide opportunities that are truly life-changing, you know, on so many levels, financially, creatively, career, that is, that's everything. That's the place that I think so many of us want to be in that lifts others up.
1: Yeah, that that giving back, it, it feels good. Because the opportunities that you've received, the same thing, and having the opportunity to then do that for someone else is—it's a very nice feeling, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, very much so.
1: Yeah. Well, you've definitely been kicking butt in the television world as of late. What is your favorite medium to work in, film or TV? And do you prefer to direct the stories that you've written?
2: Yeah. I mean, for those that may not know, sort of the difference between film and television you know, in television, you're a director for hire. So often, almost always, you are coming in to a show that already has a pre-existing visual language. It it already has a pre-existing family. You are just a guest coming into that family. So hopefully you get along with everybody and there's a good collaboration with the folks that you're working with. Whereas with film, you know, depending, like I have, I haven't worked in the studio system of film yet, but, and I'm sure it's like a different experience, but with independent film, you, you create your family, you get to pick and choose the loved ones that you want to spend your days with in the trenches to make it a joyful experience. And with you know, with television, if you're an episode, again, if you're episodic, you're a guest, even if you're a pilot director, I directed my first pilot this last year, which was super fun, had a really amazing partners. But at the end of the day, you do have like a lot of creative license, but you are answering to higher entities, whether it's showrunner, whether it's network, whether it's studios, there are still the parameters that you're working within that are defined by whatever entity that is, you know, I've been developing a lot of features, old and new that we're trying to put together. But yeah, it's the creative ownership of the film world. But then television, if you are the creator, the showrunner, the director, which is what I want all of the above for the things that I make. Mm -hmm. It's super exciting because television, you just get to live in that world a lot longer than 90 to 120 minutes. I don't prefer one to the other. I think what I prefer is just creative ownership of whatever it is that I get whatever medium I get to dip my toes into.
1: Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. Um, I imagine well working with actors you know when you come into a tv series like 13 reasons why and and they've been working together for so long and are so used to each other and then you come in as like like one or two episodes (laughs) like what is that what is that like
2: (laughs) yeah no again it can be really daunting again you hope that you are stepping into a really kind Family, which that certainly was the case. Those I I were, I did two episodes. Did I do two episodes, season two? I'm like, I think I did. I can't remember now. <laughs> but that is that was a cast of just the kindest hearts. They were such cool, sweet, welcoming young actors and the crew. I mean, I think there's such a testament to a cast and crew that will stick with a show from season to season to season. That's yeah. certainly the case with Queen Sugar, and that is certainly the case with 13 Reasons Why. The last season, knowing who, that, knowing that they had like a crew that had been there from the beginning, for the most part, is a true testament to the work environment of those shows. So that's what you are really hoping to step into, which isn't always the case. I mean, you have mm-hmm. no idea. You try and do your research and when you're offered a job or trying to get a job to get references. And the beautiful thing about Queen Sugar is that it is a huge growing sisterhood of directors. And we all talk and we all like I have a core group of female directors that we, you know, you have text chains, we hop on Zoom every like few weeks. And it's just like a safe space to share information, but it's also a safe space to like really talk about who we love and who we aren't maybe the right fit for. And that is always like, I'm always like checking references when I go out for shows and even, you know, from cast to crew, you know, I don't want to step into a system, a place where I'm set up for failure because it's just going to be miserable. I'd rather... Step into a place of joy and excitement and, like, <laughs> love. Yeah, because it's supposed to be fun. That's why we do it, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I've definitely tried to continue that, hold fast to that on every job and on every, every story and project I attach to or get hired on.
1: yeah. Well, I imagine your work keeps you very busy. How do you juggle your schedule between directing and producing and developing new material, your own material?
2: Yeah, I. so one of the beautiful things about Sundance, there's many. I love that community and those folks so much. I was a part of a fellowship from 2014 to 2015. I think now it's called the Momentum Fellowship. And... It was, I think like six or seven of us. And we it was a year program that we were paired with a mentor, we were paired with a life coach. And then we had different times we would go to LA or New York for different conferences and convene. But the gift of that was a life coach. I'd never had a life coach before. I mean, who I couldn't afford a life coach. I didn't even totally understand (laughs) what they did, but I had this wonderful woman, Laura, you know, it's all very simple stuff, very straightforward stuff, a piece of paper that I wrote my goals on. I wrote all the projects that I had going on. I wrote, you know, things like I have to figure out how to pay rent next month, (laughs) which she coached me through figuring out how to pay rent next month. But she gifted me this structure of how to week by week, check in with myself, check in with my goals, check in with my projects. That over the course of that year, you know, I had these three goals at the top that I was hoping to achieve by the end of that year. I think I achieved one of them, which was TV directing and financial sustainability. But I continue that piece of paper. I have every year. I put my now. I have like five or six goals. Comes um. A very ambitious person, um, <laughs> but I have my goals that I, I put at the top of my piece of paper. I have every single project that I'm working on at whatever different phase it is, whether it's like I'm trying to option a book or I am try- I need to read this script or I need to do a rewrite on this outline. So, And there's a lot of projects because I love what I do. I want to have a lot of stories to tell. I want to work with a lot of cool people but every week I update that. And it's funny because I was on a, a zoom with a friend right before this. And she was asking me the same question. Cause I was talking about projects. Like, how do you, how do you, what know, <laughs> is your schedule? I'm like, well, it just depends. Like, I know I have to turn this outline into the studio next week. So that's this week, next week. I know I have to like turn this thing in this time. I have a pocket of time. So I'm going to work on this like project that, has no studio or network affiliation. I know I need to check in with this writer that I'm partnered with. I need to check in on the option of that book. I'm just kind of going back to show writing, I'm a hyper-organized person. Depending on the scope of what you wanna do, you kind of have to be because you're just juggling so many things in so many different phases. And to keep up with everything, also to keep my reps focused as well. Like if I want a television show, I don't say like, just find me a television show. I say, these are the five shows that I want to get. So let's find, let's figure out meetings with those five showrunners or five production companies. I'm very specific. Yeah. You try and make the person, persons that you're working with their job easy Mm -hmm. So to make their job easy, you're being very specific, you're being very organized and you're following up.
1: Yeah. And it also helps you with authenticity. Like we spoke about earlier, you know, and then you get to be working on the stories that you care about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's really important as filmmakers start to work with representation or producers or whoever It's just being very, specific about these are the stories that I am really interested in want to tell. And that's certainly going to evolve over your, your journey and your, you know, what you respond to and the times that, you know, you're in, but I'm always very specific with folks like, and usually it's number one, like I love Texas. So I all, you know, Texas stories, I get a lot of Texas stories from my, my reps, but then, you know, like I love, punk rock. I love blue collar. I love, like, I I have like sort of my categories that I can tell people that helps hone what they bring to me and the things that I want to work on every day and get excited about every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to be excited about the work. Definitely. It's everything. Uh, Yeah. Uh, most recently you mentioned, uh, you shot the pilot for the Republic of Sarah for the CW. Were you shooting during the pandemic?
2: Yes, so we started that last February. I was in prep on in Montreal. And then on March 13th, like most folks, we got shut down. We were, I think, three days away from our first day of shooting. We were doing a camera test on that Friday and we finished our camera test and then we're all on a plane heading home the next day. So the cool thing was that, you know, originally we were ordered just a pilot we had a pilot order and that was it. And over the summer, we got a series order, which was like, oh, wow, cool. (laughs) Okay, great. Now we can maybe shift how we approach this a little bit, you know, before everything was shooting on location. And now we know we have a series order, we can build some sets and factor that all in. So the summer we spent a lot of time with the production designer and art director up there on while we were on zoom, like figuring out the stages and figuring out the sets and even like working off the costumes. And then we all reconvened in Montreal in September and we shot a good portion of October. And then I, we wrapped in early think like November 5th. And it was definitely daunting. I won't lie. I certainly had panic attacks in quarantine in Montreal, like leading up to it. Just the fear of what it was going to look like, the fear of being in a different country, away from my family, if anything did happen. But we had a really incredible COVID team. So, you know, all of the productions have a team of folks who are facilitating you know, the testing and facilitating, you know, checking in every morning, taking temperatures, going around set, like all the time, putting hand sanitizer in our hands, making sure we're changing our masks, making sure people are distanced. And then one of the really fantastic crew members in COVID, this woman who helped me, like she came from production, she was so fantastic. Like I knew like, this is what I'm trying to achieve in my frame. I know that we have all this distant stuff. How can we, and she knowing all the protocol of COVID, how can you help me achieve this? And then she and my AD would work together to make sure that it looked crowded or, you know, she was fantastic. And I, I, it was such a, a treat to have her facilitating, you know, negotiating between the COVID protocols and what I was trying to accomplish. Yeah, you're trying to adjust, you know, your muscle memory is to go up to the actors really quick and give notes. And it's like, oh, I can't do that. They have to put masks on and of I have course. to like keep distance when yeah. I talk to them or just being in close proximity, you know, the gaffers coming up to the DP and I, and it's no, 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 You're not in our, you're not in yeah. our bubble or even just like getting used to which zone bathroom you have to use. But at the end of the day, like after a little bit of time, you, you acclimate yeah. to it.
1: You get used to it.
2: Yeah. And you are like in such a tested space, you know, you're getting tested all the time. There are these people watching out for you. So you do, you know, hopefully depending on what production you're on, you feel safe in that respect, but it definitely, you know, everything from kissing scenes, you had to, we had to reconfigure and figure out to crowd scenes. It's a different way of thinking about everything.
1: Yeah. Such a challenge to overcome. And a weird thing to be living through, but you know, still making it work. It's it's remarkable.
2: Yeah, I was I was telling a friend just recently. It's going to be strange when we are back. You know, knock on everything, knock on wood. We're back to a, some a semblance of normalcy, and it's like, oh, now I have to retrain myself to actually go up to the actors and right, right. <laughs> retrain <laughs> myself that I can like be close to certain people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be a strange thing to deal with. Yeah. What advice do you have for young filmmakers or new filmmakers trying to get into the industry?
2: I mean, truly, it kind of goes back, if we circle back to the beginning of the conversation, is make stuff. You know, it's just making stuff. And if you continue to make, you'll continue, continue to hone your craft. You'll continue to have a body of work that's reflective of... Of you and your voice and your story and there'll be a point that people won't be able to ignore your work anymore or you know they'll you'll they'll take notice they'll they'll lean in but also just to cherish that time you know cherish that time where you have the freedom of not having to answer to networks or studios or you know any of that like I always say this but it's true like you have this playground that you get to live in and that you get to explore and discover and like take huge risks without an audience staring at you and hovering over you and that is certainly a time that I cherish so much like those summers we were making our scrappy indie films like (laughs) being stupid and silly and like you know, the the crazy contraptions we would come up to get a shot, you know, because we (laughs) didn't have access to a dolly. That's that's beautiful. And that I think too is what is the imagination that you have within the constraints of finances or whatnot truly like showcases your voice and showcases just the imagination that you have on the page but then also in how you craft something but yeah i love i always tell people when you're making your first feature when you're making shorts like early on that's those are the magical days of your journey that you will look back on and chase you will chase those days in your later in your career like oh if we could just you know, have a tiny little crew and, like, be really, really fast and just, like, get to do, have a creative, full creative ownership. That's what we're always chasing.
1: Yeah, so fun. Discovering and making mistakes and just having fun.
2: It's the best.
1: Yeah. Ooh, this last question is a fun one. Who would play you in a movie?
2: Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Sky's the limit on that one. If someone, someone ever chose to tell, I don't know what they would tell. It would be like a girl sitting in her office, like staring <laughs> at squirrels and hummingbirds as she tries to write things. But man, I would say sky's the limit on that one in terms of like, I don't know, just some rad, cool human who would, take risks with the performance and, and agent, like, yeah. Someone who would just like take risks and explore. And I've never thought about that. I yeah, I know. It's always was... a weird question to ask
1: <laughs> filmmakers because most of the time it's, you're not really thinking about. Yeah.
2: It's <laughs> a fun one though. I mean, it just yeah. makes you reflect on what is your, what has been your story and what has been your journey and what again again, like what were the magical days that would be, the most enjoyable and joyful to watch on screen and it 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 would be those scrappy summer days yeah life. i could see it i i want to watch that movie thank you so much for your time
1: today kat this oh my is gosh so insightful and inspiring great good. to yeah, talk to you either. Yeah. How how can our listeners follow your career? Are you on social media?
2: I am. I mean, it's pretty, I I would imagine if you just Google Kat Candler, it'll take you to all the, and then I have a a website, candlerproductions.com, which I think everything is there.
0: Movie reviews.
4: Hey, y'all. It's Summer back with a brand new review. This episode, I actually want to tell you about the coolest show on Netflix. It's called Raising Dion. It's about a widowed single mom who finds out her young son has powers and tries to raise him safely. Starring Alicia Wainwright as Nicole Warren, Josiah Young as Dion Warren, Jason Ritter as Nicole's friend Pat, and Sammy Haney as Esperanza. And there are some cameos of Michael B. Jordan as Dion's dad, Mark Warren. The show came out in late 2019, but even friends I have who are exclusively on Netflix have never heard of it. And I'm a sucker for anything superhero related. This is such a binge-worthy show. It has nine episodes in the first season and was recently picked up for a second season, which is so exciting. IMDb says that the second season is supposed to come out this year, but it's understandable if it doesn't because of COVID. Although I personally would love for it to, because it ended on a cliffhanger as well as a huge twist. And you know I love plot twists and I need to see how it plays out. This is also a fun show for kids with a G rating. So feel free to watch it with your little ones. I guarantee you they'll love it. What kid doesn't like superheroes anyways? The friendship between Dion and Esperanza is my favorite. At such young ages, they're so supportive of each other. Little kids can be mean, and we've all experienced bullying, but these two won't let any of that bad energy get to them. Now, if you aren't a big fan of superhero storylines, I highly recommend you watch this show solely based on the family-friend dynamic. Nicole is a single mom raising Dion mostly on her own, with the fortunate help of her hilarious friend Pat. He seems to be the only friend that she can trust to watch Dion. In some of the episodes, you see Pat take Dion to his work at Biona. I'll be honest, I don't remember what Biona stands for. You'll just have to watch the show to see. And there at Biona, things are not very ordinary. It's a really strange lab, if you ask me, but it's where Mark, Dion's late father, used to work. And I'm sure it's really nice for Dion to see more about his dad. And lastly, I really want to watch this show again with my mom because she raised my brother and I mostly on her own. And so it was really nice as a child in the single parent situation to see such realistic single parent representation. I hope you enjoy this show just as much as I do. Have a great day.
0: Members Spotlight
3: On today's WIFT member spotlight, we have Dana Collins, who is a producer and works in marketing with a focus in publicity and promotions. She is also the development co-chair on the WIFT Austin board. Welcome, Dana.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: First, tell us a bit about yourself and what your focus is within the film and television industry.
5: My focus has shifted a few times over the years. I started. Uh, my career in the film industry back in 2006, I started out interning with a casting agency back in Kansas City, and I fell in love with the film industry. I was interning on a small film called Lenexa One Mile one summer, and I was driving home. It was like the crack of dawn, and I like had that awe moment of like, oh, this is mm. what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So that's how I started. And then Kansas City is wonderful. I love it. It's my hometown. Uh, they have a lot of commercial production there. They shoot a lot of commercials there, but not a lot of film and television.
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: so I was like, how do I stay in this industry? I love entertainment. Like, what do I do? So I started working for a company called Allied Integrated Marketing mm-hmm. and they do film promotions for uh, major film studios. Mm-hmm. And uh, I accidentally fell into it. And I say accidentally, because I thought I was just going to get my foot in the door and like, Go work for a studio, and then I worked there for eight and a half years. So
3: Wow!
5: Yeah, I like learned how to uh, promote and publicize and do events and marketing all around movies, small movies, big movies. It was really fun. I really, I'm so lucky I got to cut my teeth doing that. And then one of my clients was the Alamo Draft House. They mm. opened um, their Kansas City location back in 2012, mm. and that's how I learned about the Alamo Draft House brand. And So that was 2012. And then at the very end of 2014, I applied for a position in the marketing department at Alamo Drafthouse in Austin. Mm -hmm. And I moved down to Austin and I worked for Alamo Drafthouse for five years and really got to learn the other side of it, the film industry on the exhibitor side Mm -hmm. to see how things run on on that end and ticketing and exhibition and just marketing things in a totally different way.
3: That's so awesome. I think, you know, kind of falling in love with the Alamo Drafthouse brand is something I think a lot of people in Austin can relate to, right? Like the programming and, you know, having such a close, um, or a special place in all of our hearts. Um, so what are you working on now?
5: So right now I've mostly been volunteering the last few months. I, Started volunteering with the League of Women Voters of Texas mm. to, to help younger voters get out and get educated. And I started helping with their Instagram account, which I was really excited about because I, I really li- like enjoy voting. Uh, well, not voting, but get, being educated and learning more about the system and getting mm. others excited about it. Mm-hmm,
4: too. Mm-hmm.
3: The overall democratic process.
5: Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, So I've been doing that and we've been increasing their followers, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And then I also, so my next door neighbor is another board member for WIFT. Uh, Her name is Marissa. She introduced me to WIFT back in August. So I joined the board of WIFT in August and I was like so excited to join and just still have a foot in the door in the film industry Mm -hmm. and get to know so many different women and just so many different ranges of careers and like mm. things I things I didn't even know about I like I'm starting to learn about now because mm-hmm. um, I haven't touched production since 2006 and I'm just like learning about all these places in Austin I didn't know about before I was like in my little Alamo bubble so mm-hmm. it's just been exciting to like get to know people and and figure out what all these strong women are doing mm-hmm. it, it's just been a really fun ride I'm also helping a friend of mine runs a website called downrightcreepy.com and he mm. launched three podcasts this summer and I helped do publicity um, and marketing for those three podcasts too.
3: Awesome. Oh my gosh, you've got your hands in so many things. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a tough one. Where do you see your career in 10 years? I don't know. So this year has been a really
5: a tough year, but an exciting year for me because I've had time to sit back and reflect and see like, what do I want to do with my life? So mm-hmm. like before I was always working, I didn't have time to even like breathe, let alone think about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I get so much joy out of helping others mm-hmm. that I want to be, when it comes to the film industry, I want to be a producer. I want to help get people get their projects off the ground. I want to help people market their projects. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to help other people fulfill their dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cheesy but I that's what I see myself doing in 10 years is, is being a producer of sorts
3: mm-hmm.
5: um and then and and then having I would love to have a little bit of hand in film and then also in like the nonprofit world so hopefully in 10 years I find a dream job that merges those two things but yeah the thing I see myself doing in the future is is continuing to help people because I, I love I love
3: doing that awesome well I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this podcast that are like ooh make my dreams happen. So (laughs) You'll have plenty of people to collaborate with. Um, so how can people find your work or get in touch with you?
5: Well, I'm on all the social media platforms. I'd say out of the three major ones, Instagram is my favorite, but yeah, I mean, you can contact me on all three and my screen name is the same on all of them. It's too fast for love. The screen name is from a Motley Crue song because I love '80s music. So um, when I started all my social media accounts way back in the day, that's why I chose that screen name. And now it's like I didn't realize social media was going to be what it is today. But I feel like I've had those handles for so long that I don't really want to change
3: them. Yeah, no, it's a part of your a part of your identity. So too fast for love. How do you spell that? It's T O O
5: F A S -S 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 T, then the number four, L-O-V-E. And then I'm on LinkedIn as the Dana Collins. So you can check Mm. me out on LinkedIn too. (laughs)
3: Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dana, for um, sharing a bit about yourself with us. If you are interested in becoming a member of WIFT Austin, being a member gives you access to a wide network of women in film and television, just like Dana, discounts on events and services, and plenty of chances to advocate for more opportunities for female identifying folks in the industry. If you're interested in learning more about how to become a member, please visit wiftaustin.com slash memberships.
0: Entertainment News. This is Kelly Coffey bringing you some entertainment news. MGM Studios has selected Misha Green to write and direct the next installment of the Tomb Raider franchise. For those unfamiliar, Green is the creator, director, and showrunner of HBO's critically acclaimed series, Loved Craft Country. She was also the writer, creator, and producer of the WGN drama Underground. Green will remain pretty busy as she is also tapped to produce the films The Mother, The Gilded Ones, and Cleopatra Jones for Warner Brothers. Tomb Raider, based on the popular video games, will be Green's feature directorial debut. The last Tomb Raider, which grossed $275 million worldwide, will again star Alicia Verklander as the iconic character Lara Croft. The popular 1980s TV series The Equalizer will get a reboot in 2021, this time starring actress Queen Latifah as the title character. In the new series, Latifah stars as Robin McCall, a single mother with a mysterious background who stands up for those who can't defend themselves. The Equalizer first premiered on TV in 1985 and ran through 1989, with the movie in 2014 and a sequel in 2018 starring Denzel Washington. This new TV series reboot co-stars Chris Snoth and actress Lorraine Toussaint, with Latifah credited as co-creator. The Equalizer premieres February 7, 2021, after the Super Bowl. And finally, the Golden Globes will again be hosted by comedian powerhouses Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. And for the first time in history, the Golden Globes has nominated not one, not two, but three women in the category of Best Director. Emerald Fennell, Regina Hall, and Chloe Zhao all received nominations in this historically male-dominated category. Hall received her nomination for her film, One Night in Miami, and Fennell's debut, Promising Young Woman, is also up for Best Original Screenplay. Zhao, whose 2020s film, Nomadland, Was just named Best Picture by the Online Film Critics Society, has an additional historic distinction as the first Asian American woman nominated for Best Director. And in case you were wondering, the only woman to ever win a Golden Globe for Best Director was Barbara Streisand for Yentl in 1984. And that's it for entertainment news. Until next time. This episode of the Wift Austin Podcast was produced by Samantha Ray Lopez, Kelly Coffey, and Chantel James. Our editors are Shannon Stefan and Miranda DeVere. Summer Heart is our social media guru. You can find us on the web at wiftaustin.com and on social media at wiftaustin. Thanks for listening, everybody.
4: you